0: Kelly Forden and I'm here today talking to Julie Ann Stewart, whose new book *Water and Blood* was just published by DeZank Books in September, 2022. Welcome, Julie.
1: Hi, hi, Kelly. Thank you for talking with me.
0: I am so thrilled to have you here. We met a few years ago at a writer's conference and I was so happy to hear your news about your new collection, but we are not talking about your collection today. We are here talking about your story, the ending and the blog post that you wrote describing the process of writing it. So I'm thrilled to get started on that.
1: Sure. I, I actually I was I wrote the blog post alongside a project that went with it. Um, and I I didn't know starting out that I was going to write the short story, the ending that came much later. But I was reading a book called Black Milk by Elif Shafak. Have you heard of? Do you know her? No. She's a, a Turkish and British writer and it's a, she writes a lot of fiction. But this was a nonfiction book that is specifically about the tension between creative work and parenting. I came across this book at a time when I was pretty heavily mired in parenting. My husband and I have a blended family, and we have seven kids between us, and uh, four of them were teenagers at the time that I was doing this project. Um, And all the things, obviously, that go with having teenagers, some you know, what I would call normal and others more um, difficult to maneuver through. And so I came across this book and I was reading it. And she had mentioned in the book somewhere that Leo Tolstoy suffered from bipolar depression, which I had heard before, but I it was the first time I heard that uh, Sophia had, was the one who recopied all his manuscripts for him as he worked, and that she actually copied them five, six, and seven times. In fact, I later heard that Tolstoy didn't even add in the character of Levin until his fifth revision. And so by that time, she was hand-copying these revisions over and over. And they had 13 children. She was running their home and doing his publishing at the time, doing all of his behind-the-scenes work. And so she would do all the normal household management stuff. Of course she had help. She had the housekeeper and books and such. But um she at night after everyone was went to bed, she would then recopy whatever pages he had written during the day. And so I was on a writing retreat with my friends and I don't know where this came from, but it just blurted out. I don't know if that happens to you projects that have been percolating and then all of a sudden you give words to them and you're like, where did that come from? And I said to my friends, I think I'm gonna recopy Anna Karenina to get into the head of a woman who's trying to juggle parenting and creative pursuits and family life. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I did, and, uh, I just started doing it. And I really had no idea while I was writing it, what would happen? Um, I was, I would, I would hand copy them into a binder And I bought this really cheap copy of Anna Karenina, just like one of these mass produced ones that you can buy at a bookstore, you know. And I would tear out each page as I finished it.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And I saved those pages and did lots of weirdly, weird creative things with them. Like I wallpapered a bathroom. Um, I would use it to send care packages to my kids at college. I would use it to stuff inside. I made blackout poetry with the pages. I did all kinds of weird things to them. Meanwhile, the whole time I was recopying the novel. Oh and it took it took two years. And then the story started to be born when two things happened. One, I was reading about Sophia Tolstoy and her life and realized that she was really interested in photography she, she was living at a time when that technology of cameras were just coming out and they had the financial means she purchased her own equipment and she would stage these tableaus of the children and she also did a lot of self-portraits and things like that wow. um, and then the other thing that happened at the, about that time i was reading along in the book and i don't have you read anna karenina
0: several times yeah
1: So there was the moment when I was, this was the first time I read the book too. I'm, I will tell you it had been always on my to-do list. And I thought, well, if I'm going to read it, this will be the best way to read it. Um, and I've, I've since done a lot of my own personal reflection on this, but my brain is very programmed to read quickly. Uh, in high school, I took a speed reading class. My brain sees letters and words and I, I can't always imagine the story alongside of it when I'm doing it. That's why I listen to a lot of audiobooks. But what happened to me instead was that making my brain slow down to the speed that my hands could write, I think I, I processed and imagined the story much more than if I had just read it. Uh, the moment when I conceived the story was when I got to the point when when Dolly's child died. And I remember... I stopped, I put my pencil down and I thought, wait, her baby's been dead for a year and he's just now telling us this. No woman would, no woman writer would leave that undone Mm -mm. that, um, that she had, you know, didn't share that in the story at all. What a significant component to Dolly's life to lead untold for so long, especially when, you know, the whole time we're getting every minute detail about Levin's life and all these other characters. So I I started imagining a reality in which Anna, in which Sophia, who's been left to recopy all these stories over and over, decides that she's going to change the story. Wow. Um, and so you've read the ending. You obviously know that she takes it even farther. Decides to not have Anna kill herself. I don't know why, it, it, you know, I don't plan those things ahead of time when I write a story. And when I remember writing my own, that story myself, and I remember thinking, she's really going to do this. So wow. that is how that came about. The 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 project, the Anna Krin, the Sophie Speaks project started much earlier. I was sort of going along and then, and then I started conceiving of this short story. And and I often joke when I read the story that I'm the only person I know who could read an 800 page novel and take two years to research it only to write a seven page short story. <laughs> I don't think people realize sometimes the amount of Witnessing and awareness and contemplation that goes into writing a short story. Mm -hmm. We think about that when someone's writing a long novel, particularly something based in historical fiction. But a short story can take just as much. Um, I think of it sometimes like baking when you have you spend hours on this huge project, you know, letting dough rise or gathering ingredients. And, and then this food comes out and it's devoured in a very short time. I know she had journals and... I I have not read them start to finish, but I was reading alongside um, a book about her and also excerpts from her memoir, her journals here and there. Mm-hmm. So I went through a lot of that. There's another book called Songs Without Words, which is tells the story there. You know, there's this rumor. No one knows for sure that she had an affair. Right. With. I mean, how would she? I just have to say how when in the world would she have time for that? (laughs) I know. With 13
0: kids. Come on. Yeah. Um okay, break.
1: Yeah, when in the world. That's what I know, it's true. So I'd love to ask you some
0: specifics about the story itself. It starts out, it's in present tense, and they are in bed together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: I I think that I started it there because that's when Sophia Tolstoy did her writing. Hmm. Um, after she had given all of herself. To everyone else during the day and then finally culminating in the last thing she would have given to her husband, which Mm -hmm. would have been her body at night where he went to sleep. And then the nighttime would have been the only time that she would have been able to take ownership of her own actions of what she wanted to do Mm -hmm. without being called. I think that that's part of the struggle of the creative writing life and parenting. Um, One of my very favorite books is The Color Purple.
0: I love that book. I just reread it this past summer.
1: I've read it probably six times. And there is in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Garden, Alice Walker has an essay called Writing the Color Purple. And she talks about how when she set out to write that book, she structured her life in such a way that she could get her daughter off to school and then write during the daytime hours. And when her daughter came home, she would be able to put her writing away and be fully present with her her life as a mother. Wow. And instead, what happened was... Nothing would come during the day. And then as soon as her daughter would come home, Celie would start talking to her and she'd be forced (laughs) to write. And this tension between that reality that a character talks to you when it works for them. And what she says in this essay is, you know, it was when she was her own sort of mother needs and her daughter was present that Celie in a book, which is entirely about this love, this mother love would come alive. For me, this is when Sophia Tolstoy came alive.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because in The Color Purple, there's so much tension between family members. And she was probably feeling that, you know, because there's her daughter wanting her attention. I guess what I'm saying is it probably really helped in the writing of it.
1: I think it did. And I think it's probably no coincidence that many, many nights I was writing, trying to get my pages in after everyone else had gone to bed and it was dark. I remember one time it was about two in the morning and I fell asleep writing and I woke up. I came to and had just continued writing absolutely (sighs) correctly, but was sleeping while writing. So I suppose in a woo-woo sort of way that I was, you know, channeling Sophia Tolstoy a little bit at that point. And, yeah. and so that's when the story was writing itself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to
0: ask you about the publisher, Vladimir Cherkov. I'm not sure if he was also involved when Tolstoy became a born-again Christian
1: he became a significant player in Leo's life and work. Um, that's And that's what it was when the Tolstoyan movement took off. Mm-hmm. And he became much more than a writer at that point. He became this symbol for a movement. And Vladimir became the person who managed it. And okay. so um, there was a lot of tension in their lives after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Got um, it.
1: And it was also at that point that uh, Tolstoy made a lot of personal changes. He became a vegetarian. He became celibate, which is another reason why I started the story that way, uh, because it it seemed to me that there was there was a difference between the person that Leo Tolstoy presented in this movement, this icon, and who he would have really been in the dark of his own bedroom with his wife. Wow. And a lot of that was representative of that for me. I I will say, I don't know if they were continuing to have a sexual relationship at that point, there Mm -hmm. are differing opinions, but that's why I call it fiction. (laughs) I can write whatever I want. (laughs) And even with journals, what we know is many parts of women's lives were never told. I mean, the whole time that Tolstoy had this, secretary in this movement behind him, she was carrying on behind the scenes and Russia is one of the most patriarchal societies. There is mm-hmm. continues to this day. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't have a lot of legal recourse for the choices that he was making. Right. Yeah. And Vladimir was a driving force behind a lot of them. Mm hmm. And you can imagine how he and Sophia would have not gotten along and felt like their interests were at odds with each other.
0: Mm-hmm. So oh, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like she mm-hmm. was just being ousted. You have such detail here about the lighting of the the lamp.
1: Uh-huh. That's not an accident.
0: Yeah. How did that? So what, tell me about that.
1: Well, I, I actually kept an oil lamp that I wrote by some night's. Wow. when i was doing it that must have been so wild it it was really wild and it's it was it was the hardest thing was finding wicks i i had to go to several uh you know it was easy to find the lamps i think i was at a garage sale or a, an antique store and i bought two lamps but the harder part was finding the wicks. I think I had to order them offline somewhere. And oh my gosh. Yeah, it was funny.
0: But I bet it really helped with like the atmosphere, creating that atmosphere, it the dark did. room.
1: If you can imagine, I don't know. I remember my dad having lamps like that, that he would use occasionally if all the power went out. Mm-hmm. We probably wouldn't we had do, them do in that drawers. now, but it did. It, it It has that feeling of when you're, power goes out at night. And even when you have a flashlight or a candle, the sphere that is lit is much smaller. We don't have this glow of light that fills a whole room that we've become accustomed to in modern times. Mm -hmm. And I think that Leo Tolstoy was very opposed to electrifying their house. I'm, mm-hmm. I need to check on that. But I, I have a memory, and I think that might have been part of why I put that detail in there, because he didn't believe in a lot of those modern conveniences, which easy mm-hmm. for him to say, right? He was in bed. He wasn't the one right. writing at night. So the this idea of decisions that he was able to make that never really impacted his day-to-day life. It impacted other people around him. And I think this comes up for me over and over in the stories that I write. It is in a lot of the stories in my book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes in reverse, there's a couple of stories where a woman makes a decision that impacts a man who has no option except to go along with it. And, it's. I'm continuing to work on that now. I'm working on a story about Louisa May Alcott and how she was driven to write, not by the creative process, but to support her family because her dad wouldn't engage in any work that actually financially supported their family. Mm-hmm. And so this comes up over and over that women are left to make the most of the resources that are available to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world does not bow down before the woman writer the way that it, I mean, no. in, in the past, I mean, maybe more today. I don't know.
1: Yeah, but. I know what you're saying. And and I think some of it now is more complicated.
0: Mm-hmm. In what way?
1: Well, I think also now there are a lot of men who are being dealing with this ability to be a good father and produce good work. Mm-hmm. so it gets more complicated in that way for for both genders but there's still books being written i mean there's still research being done that shows that in general women do the majority of housework that women do the majority of driving or accommodating
0: right, right. i am
1: very lucky so i don't want to make it sound like i'm you know not I mean, I get my privilege here, right? I'm very lucky that my partner has a job that has the benefits that I can work in a way, you know, as an adjunct. But also, I do the majority of things outside of work, right? At the time, I mean, I remember we had two kids doing swim team. We would have to get up and take them to school in the morning an hour before school for practice. I had kids with cello lessons after school, kids going to physical therapy or any other doctor's appointments. All of that was something that I was able to accommodate. And much like Alice Walker, I would think um, I'll do all of my writing in these hours between, which by the time the kids were all gone was about five hours, four hours, maybe. Right. And you get exhausted then too. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, And there were, you know, in, in some of those days, it was all I could do to work for an hour.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I remember. I wanted to ask you about, so it was Sophia who really heard the story first of the woman who. Yes. Wow.
1: Yes. I didn't know that. At the baths, because the women would go to the baths together. And it was one of the places where the women of the estate and peasant women would have been together at the same time. And they heard, she heard this story. Wow. About a woman. And so the original idea was born in her imagination, in, in her witnessing of the lives of other women around her. Mm -hmm. and She brought this home. And you have to think that she probably gave him insight. If they were writing this story, she was editing it. I do. I started wondering to myself, were there changes she made as she wrote that he didn't even know about?
0: Well, or how about this? Like I was thinking when I was reading your story, I thought, If they were really as close as everyone says Mm -hmm. they were, she -hmm. had to go back to him at certain points and say, this is not how any woman would think or she would not be, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. You would think. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, maybe
1: more politely than that. But yeah, that was what I found so shocking when Dolly's baby died, that someone didn't say, hey, this is not how it would work. And, And Anna wouldn't have Anna might have waited a year to show up maybe out of fear or some other emotion, but we would have heard about that.
0: Right. And what about Sophia's own child? So her 13th child was the one that she Uh was most attached to.
1: Yes. And and he he died. died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can, uh, there's some portraits she has made of her next to the, like a, a photograph she took of herself Standing by his, the painting of him. Mm-hmm. And you can see that. I believe he was six or seven.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure which, yeah. And then they were never kind of the same again.
1: I mean, I don't think so. Wow. Yeah. And, and she, kind she just diverging at this point into some of her photography. And he's going off in this other direction where he's becoming bigger than life. Mm hmm. So while I imagine, to myself at least, I imagine that as her world shrinks in on this moment, his is growing bigger. He's moving into this outside world that she's no longer a part of. Right.
0: So in the story, you imagine that she doesn't jump because she doesn't want to leave her family. Is that right? She just, well,
1: her child specifically. Her child. Yeah. It all kind of stemmed from that moment when Dolly's child died. The realization that she had this daughter who who was teething and she wasn't even a part of it um, because she had sort of disconnected herself. Then this son that she has been separated from. So while the two men who are the fathers to her children meet at the train station, she has gathered up both of her children and is long gone. Right. That's how I imagine it at Any any point. And then, you know, the other simultaneous piece to that is while Leo is sleeping and thinking he's signed away the books and he's done all his thing, meanwhile, She's changing the story. Sophia is up at night changing the story. And of course, at this point, the book has already been sold and published and he's signed the rights away. Right. But somewhere tucked away in a trunk, almost like Pandora's box waiting to be opened, Mm -hmm. is this whole other direction that the story has gone. And it's just there waiting. Tell me a little bit about the idea behind
0: water and blood
1: it started in a very similar way except it began with women much closer to my own life and history i was trying to find a connection to the history of women in my own family and i had these three great aunts who were nuns two of them were sisters of providence and one of them was a daughter of charity and i had we had brief visits with two of them, at least the sisters of Providence, that's my Aunt Margaret and my Aunt Ruth. We had brief visits with them as children, but I never in my life saw uh, Sister Laura, who was the daughter of Charity. And I felt like there was this huge gap of -hmm. these women's stories in my life. And I wanted to know more about them. And so I set about trying to find out. And I visited the mother house at sisters of Providence and the nuns there were, the sisters there were so lovely. They pulled all the photographs and letters and every bit of historical information they had about my two aunts and let me copy them and go through them. And what I learned about them was, is that they both had master's degrees. Wow. I had spent my whole life being told I was the first person in my family to go to college. But what I realized it meant was the, none of the men had gone to college. Right. <laughs> These three women, one had a master's degree in music. She played the violin and the piano. And I have her report card. She got straight A's all through graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, and at the Conservatory of Cincinnati. And my other aunt, uh, her, at her master's in education. And uh, these women, I remember meeting with uh, a couple of the sisters, and one of them had even lived with my aunt for a time. Wow. They would oh teach gosh. during the school year. And then every summer for June and July, they would come back to the mother house and they would live it, together in communion and wow. go to classes or pursue their educations. I learned all these things about these women. I remember saying to one of them, did you ever felt like you gave anything up? And she said that it was quite the opposite, that she would hear these stories from the mothers of husbands coming home drunk, them being mm-hmm. beaten, that they mm-hmm. had no control over their life or even their own children. Mm-hmm. And they felt they had a freedom that women who married didn't have. The Sisters of Providence is at a small college in Southern Indiana called St. Mary of the Woods. And it's, I believe it's gone co ed at this point, but I think it's still majority women, young women who go to school there. And that, you know, in gender obviously is something that's evolving. I don't know how that's playing out in their student population. But at the time that I was writing this story, these women were so gracious to me and just welcomed me in. And I went and had lunch with them and went to mass. Uh, and then my third aunt sister, Laura worked at a leprosarium in Baton Rouge for 62 years. Wow. And apparently she was the longest serving sister in daughters of charity history. Gosh. When I called to talk, they were so excited. Oh, you're a great aunt of Sister Laura, great niece of Sister Laura. She's so wonderful. We, we have all this information on her. Oh, and my gosh. No one in my family knew this, by the way, when I went to tell them. No one in my family knew they'd gone to college, had these uh, advanced degrees. They were very much encouraged not to talk about themselves or focus their lives on themselves. Right. Which that's a a difference. Women had this freedom to do that, but they still didn't own anything of theirs. There's a letter. There is a letter in um, the archives that they pulled from me, from one of my aunts to her mother superior at the time that their mother died. She inherited $648 and she was turning the check over to the order oh my gosh um, because as a you know as a nun as a sister she was obligated to give them everything and um and so that was a part of their life that was the same for women there's no documentation of any of these stories so while the stories there there are three stories that are each one is inspired by one of those great aunts of mine there's no documentation of their lives i mean i can i had letters from students. I had, you know, report cards, things like that, but nobody sat down and listened to their stories. And so the best I could do was learn what I could and make up a story that I thought would be true.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That was the truest I could make it. And uh, for me, uh, a big part of this book is also growing up with my own family stories that were kept secret. And I needed a way to tell those that I could tell in a true way without maybe not without necessarily knowing every physical detail or fact. There's this idea that stories of trauma, they play out in our body in very physical ways. And often the factual memories of them are disconnected because of the psychological damage that's been done. And so the best we can do is recall the body experience without really being able to know every fact, when, where, how, those kinds of things. And so the whole book is a collection of reckonings of these stories that had not been allowed to be told over time. Mm -hmm. And the story the book grew beyond my three great aunts after a while there's a story in there about madge oberholter it's based in indiana um and her she actually lived in the neighborhood i was living in at the time and i walked i could walk to her house from the grand dragon DC Stevenson's house. I could walk. It was a 15 minute walk and she was uh, raped and murdered by him. And and at the time her public statement brought down his power and the corrupt Republican leadership running Indiana at the time, the governor, he was bribing other people in the Republican government of Indiana at the time. Uh, and what I didn't know when I was researching that story was how the Klan used its connect, used a, a a message of hate ness about German Catholic immigrants, and that came at the time I was researching that and researching the Klan in Indiana and discovered this. And I, my father, who was still alive at the time, I asked him about it because he grew up in Evansville and country and he said that he remembered the neighborhood he grew up in was an integrated neighborhood. And he can remember clan crosses being burned on some of his black neighbors front yards. Wow. But he also remembered parades of the clan through downtown where some of them would dress up as nuns and pretend to be having sex with each other, making lewd comments and actions. Wow. And it was it was done at the time mostly to recruit membership for the Klan, and they knew that that would be a way that they could recruit Protestant white men in Indiana with this same sort of message that we see today, which is these immigrants are taking your jobs, they're stealing your women, they're ruining our culture, they're you know taking over, and you will, and you won't have what you have now. Reason I wrote that story, and this was probably the hardest story to write, is that there's a thread in it that's memoir, and then there's a thread in it that are actual excerpts taken from Madge Oberholzer's statement that she made. The fictional part of it is DC Stevenson's voice. He never con- confessed to the crime, and so <sighs> I wanted I wanted him to have to say he did it. I wanted to imagine a world in which men owned up to what they did, some of these men anyway. And uh, there was a lot of other stuff going on in the world at the time that I wrote that addition to the book, one of them being the Brett Kavanaugh trials. Her story has been widely accepted as true. So all I did, I mean, and, and I, in his voice, I still was using facts that were part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, things that were from her excerpt thing or from her statement, things that I learned at the time. I, I guess it was another one of those stories that the re- research I had to do for it was pretty extensive. I read a lot of information about the clan at the time. Librarians were just my superheroes throughout the writing of this book. And, and they pulled some newspaper articles for me. And I was able to recreate some details so that in the story, the fictional part was really just him owning up to his role in it. And I don't think anyone in Indiana sees him as a hero, so I wasn't really stepping on any toes in doing that. And instead, all I was doing was giving Madge perhaps some closure. at the same time, a component of that story was to begin to question our role of white privilege in that story because she was buried in a segregated cemetery. And this was a piece of the story that always bothered me. No one has really said anything to me about that, which is what surprises me. Mm -hmm. I have had a couple of people suggest that there's no way Madge's family was involved with the Klan. And yet historical facts show that Masons were heavily recruited membership in the Klan. So, and the sec- and, as I said, I visited her gravesite so I visited so many grave sites for this book. It's really weird, but the sec- the cemetery where she's buried is is segregated wow. or it was at the time, and so even though she was speaking out against this man and he was convicted of the cr- of the crime, they weren't no one really addressed it as a part of the racial. Tension at the time that was sort of glossed over. These kinds of things are hard to write about. What I find the most shocking is not family members who've been upset about the book. What is, in fact, the most shocking to me is the numbers of other people at various events who have come to me and said that similar things have happened to them. People who might be in the book were related players, or that the a priest that I wrote about was also a part of her family saying, you know, you just need to keep quiet about this. Wow. I, I have had so many people come up to me and say, this has happened to me too. And and this is the person that did it. And it was Mm. almost like they needed permission to share it with someone finally. Mm. And either they hadn't, been listened to before or hadn't felt safe enough to open up about that. And I will not say there hasn't been fallout. There have been some tensions and also some resolutions, which I never would have imagined. But I wouldn't trade any of it for these stories of people like me who've been walking around not able, letting these stories fester inside them until it made them sick. If I could play any role in people being able to let go of some of that for themselves and be able to talk honestly about it, then I'm okay with it.
0: Okay. I know we've gone over our time together, but thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate it.